State of the Union. This video will also be published on the podcast feed for Fate of the Union, so I encourage everyone to go check that out if you want as well. Fate of the Union, both on iTunes and Spotify. I wanted to start off the video by saying thank you to everyone who watched my previous video on the banning of Atheism is Unstoppable's channel. I was surprised and frankly happy to see it get the attention that it got. Now before we get into the topic for this video, we do have a quick update on YouTube's actions against Devin's channels, although the chance of success on appeal to YouTube is minimal. AIU pursued this route anyway to perhaps even get at least more of an explanation from YouTube. However, as we can see, there wasn't much of one put forth by YouTube in response. This email was issued to Devin after the appeal was decided and eventually denied by YouTube. In YouTube's denial of the appeal, it states, quote, Your account has been terminated due to repeated or severe violations of our community guidelines on hate speech. Although YouTube is a platform for expression of all kinds, our community guidelines prohibit speech that promotes hatred or violence towards certain groups or individuals. So, really, the only point of clarification given in this email is that the decision was, in fact, tied to the hate speech policy that I talked about in my previous video. However, there continues to be no mention of what content actually violated the terms and how. There's been no link to a video, no timestamp, or even a broad mention of the topics worthy of an adverse action from YouTube. Moreover, there is also no mention for why the three-strike system was not followed in this situation. We'll continue to keep an eye out for more info to see if YouTube does, although it's unlikely, to see if they reverse any decision or reconsider. But today I wanted to talk a little bit about the case of Michael Brown. This idea for the video came primarily as a result of the debate between Actual Justice Warrior and the Surf's channels on YouTube. If you're interested in both this case and the broader issues of policing and race relations and the interactions between black communities and the police, I encourage everyone to go watch the debate. It is a uh, rather long debate. It's a little over two hours, as you can see right here. Uh, I, mu I must admit, I'm a little bit more familiar with um, AJW's channel. I'm recently subscribed over there. But he describes his channel as, quote, I'm just a random guy talking about news, YouTube stuff, SJWs, and trying to have a little fun while doing it. He does cover issues surrounding criminal justice in particular and is also from the United States. The serfs, who I admittedly know a little bit less about their content, describe their channel as, quote, in a media landscape blemished with uncertainty, two indentured plebs bring you their comedic spin on the weekly news, end quote. This channel appears to be more left-leaning uh, politically, and I believe they are from Canada. This video is really going to be more about the Michael Brown case itself, along with the long-lasting effects of the reckless commentary in the wake of the shooting, and the effects it's had on criminal justice, more so than 
the actual debate here in itself. But again, I encourage everybody to go check that out. I'll be sprinkling in some commentary from the debate to the extent it's relevant to the discussion of this case. Now, the Michael Brown case is commonly thought of as the, quote, hands up, don't shoot case. This moniker comes from the narrative spun in the wake of the shooting of Michael Brown by Officer Darren Wilson that Brown was running away with his hands up when he was shot by Officer Wilson. Thus, Brown could not have been a threat if he was running away, unarmed, with his hands up and clearly in sight. However, the public came to realize soon after the events of this case that the hands up don't shoot narrative was completely false. Here's an overview of the case and the ensuing media coverage as told by Heather McDonald in her book, The War on Cops. I encourage everyone to go read that, again, if this is a topic that interests you. Quote, the August 2014 shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, spawned a narrative as stubborn as it was false. Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson had allegedly shot the 18-year-old, quote, gentle giant in cold blood while the latter was pleading for his life, hands raised in surrender. The facts were that Brown, a budding criminal who weighed nearly 300 pounds, had punched Wilson in the face, tried to grab Wilson's gun, and charged at him, leading to Wilson firing in self-defense. However, in the months that followed, the lie that Brown had died in a racially motivated police execution was amplified by the media, college presidents, and a left-wing political class. The newly formed Black Lives Matter movement promoted the notion that black males were being hunted down and killed with impunity by renegade white police officers, end quote. Similar commentary supported at least the initial sentiment from the surf's video and commentary on the Michael Brown case when many of the statements on at least the initial factual background of the case were rebranded by the channel as walking while black and fully promoting the racial motivation to a not only engage with Michael Brown in the first instance, but to eventually kill him unjustifiably allegedly in a second. This eventually sparked an AJW response, some more responses thereafter, and then finally the two hour plus debate. At the outset, we can see that this narrative, even insofar as it broadly described here, misrepresents the relationship between black communities and police officers, namely white officers. First, we know that a police officer is roughly 18 times more likely to be shot by a black American than the other way around. Second, we know from a review of police shooting data that black Americans who are unarmed, aka the most non-threatening of suspects, are actually rarely ever shot and killed by police when compared to their total representation of the population. In the last two years, 9 and 23 unarmed black people were shot by the police respectively, while current census estimates say that blacks make up just under 45 million people in the U.S. Nevertheless, riots broke out in Ferguson both in the wake of the shooting, but also after the grand jury declined to indict Wilson for Brown's death. The persistent lie of hands up, don't shoot 
hindered the initial investigation as the Canfield Green neighborhood of Ferguson posted signs saying things like, quote, snitches get stitches. While one man in the community called a police tip line after seeing Brown's friend lie on TV about the events, at least one other man in the community refused to give formal statements on the case due to the intense social pressure within the community to support the hands up, don't shoot story. In reality, all available evidence demonstrated that the prosecution would not have been able to carry the case to a conviction for Brown's death. Numerous witnesses, including a half dozen black witnesses, all confirmed that Wilson did not shoot Brown in cold blood and Brown was not shot in the back while his hands were up. Witnesses also stated that Brown attacked Wilson and tried to grab his gun. Blood and DNA traces found at the scene demonstrated that Brown had initiated the altercation by attacking Officer Wilson while Wilson was still in the cop car. He then tried to grab the officer's gun. After the physical altercation was broken up for a brief moment, Brown then charged at Wilson again and was eventually shot. I believe that much of the rioting and destruction dealt upon the black community in the wake of this shooting, as with many of the police shootings since then, was drastically increased and empowered by the commentary of those on the political left and the mainstream media. So let's take a look at how the left and the media impacted the reception of these events and how these individuals influenced mass criminality in the very communities they purport to care for. The first offender of false narratives that comes to mind involving the Michael Brown case is President Obama and his administration. In November 2014, President Obama appeared on national television to deliver some remarks on the recent grand jury decision not to indict Officer Wilson. At one point, he said, we are a nation built on the rule of law, and so we need to accept that this decision was the grand jury's to make, end quote. Then Attorney General Eric Holder prematurely declared that the Ferguson PD was needing of widespread changes of its practices due to racially motivated targeting and police practices within the community. Now, President Obama's statements actually are correct, but just not in the way that many receive them. However, they're also incomplete. Where the president missed the mark was a plain statement that the grand jury's decision was not only rightfully within their province to make, but it was also incontrovertibly correct, both factually and legally. President Obama also stated that there are Americans who are deeply disappointed, even angry, It's an understandable reaction, end quote. But it's really only understandable when ignoring the evidence presented to the grand jury and when taking notice of the media and politicians advancing false narratives that would clearly result in crime and destruction within the black communities. President Obama also stated that, quote, the situation in Ferguson speaks to broader challenges we still face as a nation. The fact is, in too many parts of the country, a deep distrust exists between law enforcement and communities of color. End quote. 
Again, this statement is actually correct, but not for the reason that the left and the media would believe. To be sure, the common narrative coming from these individuals is that the distrust is the result of intense and unrelenting police brutality unleashed on these communities as a product of so-called institutional racism. But again, this statement, the comments were correct, but not complete. There is indeed a distrust between these two groups of people, but it actually stems from years of indoctrinating and gaslighting communities of color. Compounding the misstatement about the case from the White House, you had outlets like the New York Times running numerous stories, some on the front page in the wake of the grand jury's decision, that justified the riots in Ferguson as, quote, understandable. The New York Times also resurrected the claim that disproportionate representation in certain groups of power is per se discrimination or institutional racism. For example, at the time, Ferguson's population was two-thirds black, but five out of six city council members were white, as was the mayor. Now, this was in large part due to the low voter turnout of blacks living in Ferguson, and no real movement among the community to promote a black candidate for these positions. No matter, as New York Times subbed up this issue in a front-page story titled, quote, Most Black Cities, Most White City Halls. New York Times also claimed racist targeting on the part of the Ferguson PD when stopping and searching a higher number of blacks than other races. Similar arguments were used to summarize the warrants issued resulting from non-payment of traffic tickets that disproportionately affected the black population who received tickets but did not pay them at a higher rate than other groups. The New York Times deemed the riots understandable when, as in Ferguson, the police are, quote, justifiably seen as an alien, occupying force that is synonymous with state-sponsored abuse, end quote. To the extent a left-wing activist gets specific about the real effect of the allegedly racist police force, some have pointed to statistics such as those published by ProPublica in October 2014 and were popularized in the wake of the Michael Brown case. The study concluded that young black men are 21 times more likely to be shot dead by police than young white men. However, what is left out of this analysis is the astronomically higher number of murders and violent crimes committed by this very demographic. Thus, one could expect the demographic to be more represented in police shootings, whether justified or not, and not necessarily murder, if that group is disproportionately committing acts in which police respond to with deadly force. Furthermore, when looking at the Washington Post police shootings database, the data as it related to black suspects has been largely consistent since the inception of the database. The data from 2014 and 15 are interesting here as it relates to the climate across the country leading up to and in the wake of the Michael Brown shooting. There were 258 black victims of police shootings in 2015, when accounting for both justified and unjustified shootings. Most of the suspects were seriously attacking the officer when shot. Meanwhile, there was approximately 6,000 black homicide victims in the country each year. So even if the police could somehow eliminate all killings of black suspects, and certainly 
in the case of eliminating the ones that were unjustified legally, it still would not have a significant impact on reducing the number of black homicides or killings per year. Now, one point of contention that I saw in the debate was the findings of the Justice Department after the Michael Brown case. In March 2015, the department released the official report on the case. The report ended up demolishing the whole quote-unquote gentle giant narrative, along with the hands-up-don't-shoot narrative, to the extent it still existed. The report also made certain that there would be no civil rights charges brought against Officer Wilson. However, then Attorney General Eric Holder made the bewildering decision to commission a second report on the allegedly racist Ferguson PD as a whole, and do so before the first report's findings were completely published. Holder actually added fuel to the fire by telling Politico that the standard of proof in civil rights cases should be lowered. The clear implication here is that the Justice Department was forced not to bring charges as a product of the unduly high standard of proof in civil rights cases, and not because Officer Wilson simply did not actually break the law in this case. Nevertheless, outlets like the New York Times and Huffington Post ran with this narrative. The New York Times claimed that the Justice Department, quote, found overwhelming evidence of entrenched racism in Ferguson's police force, end quote. HuffPo, on its part, framed the report's conclusions as the decision not to file federal charges in particular and not as the report finding showing that Wilson had not broken the law. Moreover, what many commentators don't fully realize, I think, is that the two reports here were produced by two separate sections of the Justice Department. The criminal section, along with the FBI and the resident U.S. Attorney's Office in Missouri produced the first report that more specifically focused on the Michael Brown case and found that no civil rights charges would be brought against Officer Wilson. However, the second report was done by a different section of the Justice Department. They do a lot more pontificating on legislative reform, how different interpretations or different sections of the law would have made cases different. They're more of a a legislative advocacy type of group, more so than an actual criminal investigative group. In fact, the second report really promotes anecdotes that, even if fully true, do show incompetency on the part of the Ferguson PD officers but only insofar as lacking knowledge of the Fourth Amendment, especially when it concerns people who are being stopped and frisked or people who are in their car being stopped for an investigative search. Instead, the report fashions these stops and searches as racially motivated instead of lacking the knowledge of the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, but only because a black suspect was involved and really nothing more. Here, if a young black man grows up hearing from teachers, from politicians, from so-called community leaders, and those in the media, aka those who have 
spent a long time building up a kind of authority that's been granted to them and expertise in these topics, that there are uniformed agents of the state whose covert, if not overt, mission was to hunt people like him for sport without impunity, then you can understand why there exists an intense distrust of those government actors in these communities. But with the persistent narrative being promoted by political actors and those in the mainstream media, it's unlikely to see a real change in attitude and a real change in the kind of relationship that these communities and their respective police forces have. It will also likely result in a persistent effect that, again, what Heather McDonald has termed the Ferguson effect. She states, quote, This kind of misinformation about the criminal justice system and the police can only increase hatred of the police. This hatred, in turn, will heighten the chances of more Michael Browns attacking officers and getting themselves shot. Police officers in the tensest areas may hold off from assertive policing. Such de-policing will leave thousands of law-abiding minority residents who fervently support the police ever more vulnerable to thugs, end quote. And I think that that's really a longer and more elaborated on version of saying that the advocacy coming from this side and the suggestions for reform, whether it be de-policing, defunding the policing, uh, demilitarizing the policing insofar as they are no longer capable of enacting deadly force when necessary, will really only make the communities that have a higher crime rate more dangerous. The crimes that had savaged the community in the past will continue to happen. And given simple concepts of deterrence that are realized in communities, once people are prosecuted for the crimes they commit, if that's also abolished, then crime can only stand to increase in these communities. And thus, inherent in every black-on-black crime is not only the black suspect, the black individual who eventually goes to jail, as the media likes to focus on, but also a black victim in that community that is scared to live in a community where violence and crime runs rampant, and the very people who are charged with the responsibility to protect them are nowhere to be found. We'll continue to keep an eye on cases like the Michael Brown case that inevitably will continue to be relitigated, especially in public circles. And we'll do our best here to give a little bit of a different perspective and a different interpretation of how the case went down, its effects back when it happened, and the continuing and persistent effects it has to this day. In the meantime, again, I hope everybody will go watch the debate between AJW and the serfs. I've seen a lot of it, but not all of it right now. And it was mostly civil. I'd say it was certainly a civil exchange. It was contentious at points, but I think it's overall a good watch. So I, I would encourage everyone to go watch the debate. Subscribe to both channels if that's really something you're interested in. And in the meantime, uh, feel free to 
like and subscribe on YouTube at Fate of the Union. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Medium at Fate of the Union. And you can also find us by the same name on the podcast directories of both iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.